you know, it's always interesting coming back to uh, Canada. And I'm a bit of a news junkie, and so uh, I was trying to find out, all right, what's going on? And uh, this week in the news, I saw in the New York Times that the, the world's most famous atheist was in the news, and it caught my attention. Richard Dawkins, he's a, um, he's a professor at Cambridge, and he's made a boatload of money uh, writing books against Christianity and against religion in general. And... Lo and behold, the article was in the New York Times, not because he had a new book, but because he'd been barred from this uh, radio talk show. And he'd been barred from the radio talk show because they felt he was Islamophobic. And he said, well, prove that I'm Islamophobic. He said, well, they had a few quotes, and they quoted him as saying, look, you, you've called Islam the greatest force for evil in the world today. And so in defense, he said, look, I've called Christians a lot worse things. And um, let me tell you what he's uh, called Christianity. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capricious, and malevolent bully. All right, that's his uh, description of the God of the Old Testament. Now, you know, you take somebody like this and uh, imagine you have a son or daughter and... uh, uh, influenced by this evolutionary biologist, and he decides to leave his faith. He decides to leave his faith, and now how would that make you feel? What kind of psalm would you write? Or imagine if uh, you're in the 2008 financial crisis, and you were sold a uh, subprime mortgage and the interest rates went up and you just lost your house and you're living with the family in the basement, your marriage is falling apart, you've lost your work and suddenly you see the government bailing out Wall Street but they're not bailing you out. What kind of psalm would you write? And I think the psalm you might write might sound a bit like Psalm chapter 10 that we read. It starts out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? And many Christians around the world, they ask this question, Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And if we look at what ISIS has done to many Christians in the Middle East, it begs the question, and I'm sure many of them are asking, Where are you, God, in all of this? And I'm sure you and I have asked the same thing in our lives when when crisis struck. Where are you, God? And then it goes on. The arrogant, the wicked, hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And here we have people, they renounce the Lord. They they renounce that he exists, and, and they make money. And it seems like, they're the ones that are, that are prospering. And I hear this as I come back, and I see it more and more in Western society. And I think, well, we, we can turn to history. We can turn to history and see if, if what is said here in this psalm is truly true. I mean, at first I, I read the psalm, and it seemed almost that it was extreme. 
you look at uh, verse 8, all right, he talks about these people who turn a blind eye to God, and it says, he sits in ambush in villages, in hiding places, he murders the innocent, his eyes stealthily watch for the helpless, he lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he might seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. You look at this and you think, man, is this just poetic? Is it poetic overkill in this psalm? Do those who turn a blind eye really end up like that? A blind eye to God? And yes, many, many don't. Many atheists are very nice people. But what happens when when God is totally put aside from a society? And we have the 20th century to thank for looking at models of societies that have totally put aside God. We can start with, with the communist regime under Stalin. It is estimated that between 56 and 62 million unnatural deaths occurred during his reign. 56 to 62 million. This is when God is totally taken out of the picture. We can take a look at another society when God is totally taken out of the picture. Look at 20th century Mao Zedong. The French press agency estimates that between the rural purges, the urban purges, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, labor camps in Tibet, between 44.5 and 72 million people have died. We could look at Hitler. We could look at the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. And we look at this and and we suddenly realize that what we read in this text is that, yeah, they lurked, they hid. We look at the KGB. We look at the Gestapo. They lurked, they hid. And so suddenly we, we realize that in this psalm, a life without God, a society without God, has a great chance of going in the wrong direction. In Indonesia, where we work, they're kind of astute historically. They've looked at what went on in the world in the 60s. And in the 60s, the communists tried to take over the Indonesian government as well. And so during this time, they legislated that everybody had to believe in God. It is a criminal offense not to believe in God. If you, on your Facebook page, you say you're an atheist, you could be in trouble. You can say you're an agnostic, but if you say you're an atheist, you're in trouble. Why? Because they've seen what happened. They live in that part of the world. They've seen what happened in Vietnam and the Khmer Rouge and and the upset that that can bring. Now, as we look at the psalm and we see these people renouncing God, we see the psalmist suddenly, but you do see for you note mischief. It's talking about God. That you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. And here we have almost this statement of faith, this statement of faith that, that God is the helper of the fatherless. Now, this, this can be difficult. This can be difficult, especially if you're in a situation where you're being persecuted for your faith, where your God seems to be mocked, where you seem to be under the gun. So how do you take the statement of faith? And I think often we think of faith, yeah, faith is taking a belief and then acting on it. And if God is going to be a father to the fatherless, how is that going to happen? And that's going to happen when we take our, our beliefs and we put action to that. 
We can jump to the New Testament. New Testament says it very well in Matthew 10, verse 42. And whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, or in my name truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. See, this sense of cup of cold water in my name. It means being aware of who needs refreshment, but doing it in the name of Jesus. And this is not always easy. I think many of us in the West, we like the cup of cold water part. But we're often a little embarrassed to join it with the fact that we are doing this because we're Christian. That that's our motivation. That includes myself. Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim country. It's the world's largest Muslim population. And part of what I do is I work with people at all levels of society. And our project is recognized as uh, an experiment within Indonesia. And so every once in a while, I have to give a report to the provincial congress. And after I give the report, uh, they often arrange a press conference for me to answer questions. And I remember one time, we there was this uh, congresswoman, and she stood up and she said... Um, I want to know why you are here. I understand what you're doing, and it's good, and we're supportive, but why are you here? And I caught myself swallowing, thinking, all right, I could lose my visa here. All right? And, but I felt that God wanted us to be clear as to why I was there. And I said, look, as, as a follower of Jesus, I believe that we get great enjoyment by helping the poor. And I enjoy working with you to help the rural kids in, in, in Indonesia. But as a follower of Jesus, I also believe that the Bible says that as I do it to the least of these kids that you have in your society, I am doing it for Jesus. I kind of held my breath, wondering where this was going to go. And she stood up and she said, you know, we need more people in our country that are motivated by love and not money, that are motivated by love to serve others. And if we look at the early church, we see that that is exactly what went on. We see the early church, they had a strong sense of what they believed, and they had a strong sense of, of commitment to help the poor. There's this agnostic sociologist called Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark taught for many years at the University of Washington, and he was fascinated by how in the world you had a handful of Christians at the resurrection of Jesus, and then 300 years later, you had 30 million Christians, half the Roman Empire, had become Christian. And so, as a sociologist, he started looking at what happened in those first 300 years. In one of his books, he has a fascinating chapter entitled Epidemics, Networks, and Conversion. And he noted that in the Roman Empire, there were several epidemics that swept the Roman Empire. And what happened during these epidemics was that the cultural elite, they left the cities... And it's at that point that the Christians stepped into action. And he started doing these macabre statistics. All right? And he realized that when all these people were dying, what were the Christians doing? And he realized that simply by providing food, water, and friendship, the immune systems of many of these people that would have died was saved. And through his statistics, he came to the conclusion that two-thirds of the people who would have died stayed alive. They stayed alive because of the actions of Christians. What did the Christians do? Food, water, and friendship. And what happened next was suddenly you had this pocket of people who were alive because their lives were touched by Christians. 
the other ones had passed away. And these slowly rose in prominence. And he said it was only natural that they would join the church. That became their family. Other family had died. It was only natural that slowly these people would raise in prominence. And it was only natural that Constantine would then allow Christianity to become one of the prominent religions in the Roman Empire. You see, it was food, friendship, and water. Very simple. A cup of cold water. And if we think of a cup of cold water, if we think about by faith seeing God help our society, yes, he is the head of the body, but we are the hands, we are the feet, we are here to make that statement of faith real in our society. And it's the sense of cup of cold water that that means we're aware. A cup is small. But if you think of a cup of cold water, it means you've noticed the person that came in and he's hot and sweaty and that he needs this cup of cold water. He needs refreshment. And that means an awareness of the people around you. When we went to Indonesia, when we were asked to work amongst the Lani, Everybody knew that they needed education and health care. Everybody agreed on that. As we went in, we went from community to community to community. It soon became very clear that there was a third need. A third need, and that was the elephant in the room that nobody talked about. The people wanted peace. They wanted reconciliation. And in 2003, there was this huge skirmish military came into the valley where we are. The valley has about 13,000 people, and uh, the warlords, they did battle with the Indonesian military, and eventually they lost, and they dis- 